Please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, verse 23. Mark 2, 23. After spending many weeks, it seemed like in chapter 1, it seems like we're racing through chapter 2, and we're going to um, finish that and go into chapter 3 this morning as we look at this issue of the Sabbath. And uh, we talked about how that really there's these... Uh, kind of five conflict stories between the Jewish leaders and Jesus. And we're going to deal with uh, number four, number five of those, which both deal with the Sabbath. So um, let me pray, and then let's read this text. Let us pray. Lord, what a wonderful privilege it is to have your word, to have it in our language, to have it so accessible to us every day. We have it we have multiple, many of us have multiple copies on our shelves, and we have multiple versions on our phones, and, and we can study it, and we have so many tools at our disposal. And Lord, as we come to this portion of this service, when we sit under the authority of your word, we rejoice, knowing that it is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Lord, I pray that it would speak to us and that it would even cut away that dross out of our heart that would, that would lead us away from following Christ and delighting in Him. So, Lord, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word this evening for your glory and for our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark two twenty three. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields... And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God at the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word this evening. I was recently cleaning out the coats, the pockets of a coat. And you never know what you're going to find in your coat pocket, especially if it's hung in the closet all summer. Um, And I was washing it, and for some reason, there was a little wooden cross in there. I think, as I recall, someone had given it to me when I went to preach in a little rural Mississippi church, and they thought that would be a good gift to give to the itinerant student preacher that was there. But I just stuck it in this coat pocket, and I tossed it on the table, and one of my children picked it up and was looking at it and commenting about it, and he asked a question about what was the sign of God's people before Jesus. And I thought, well, that was 
That's, a, that's an interesting question. And so I don't know that I really answered him very well. I, I thought about circumcision. Certainly God gave that to Abraham as the sign of the covenant, but that was not readily available or, or apparent to, to the public, certainly. Um, there was also the feast that God instituted, the sacrificial system, but that was the feast especially were somewhat occasional. But the idea of the Sabbath was something that was very regular. Every week, God's people under the Old Covenant would observe the Sabbath. And that was something that marked them out, that made them distinct from the nations around them. But um, as we've said about the Pharisees, that they drew fences around the law. They not only observed the law, they put laws in place to make sure that they never even got close to the line of breaking the law. They drew up these laws to govern Sabbath observation, as they did about many things um, in, in their day. But the high point of our text this morning, or this evening, is that Jesus Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. That's my first point. The second point is simply, hopefully, something practical, and that is the purpose of the Sabbath. The Lord of the Sabbath and the purpose of the Sabbath. So what does it mean that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath? Again, we're looking at this idea of Christ's authority and how we see it building in these early chapters. He's authority over sickness, over unclean spirits, over disease. His authority to call his disciples. All of these things, we see his authority, his authoritative preaching. And here we see that his authority reaches even the most sacred of Jewish observations, that is, of the Sabbath. And again, as previous texts, we've seen these Pharisees are questioning him, looking for a way to trap him, looking for a way to trap him in his words. This events of this text happen early in Christ's career, um, in his ministry. And here we see his um, disciples. They were passing near a grain field. And they simply, from what the text seems to tell us, that they just simply plucked some heads of grain, you know, and Maybe they just mashed them in their hands and blew the chaff away and started eating the kernels of grain. Something very simple, something that, that was not a violation of the law. They were not harvesting the grain. They were not threshing, threshing the grain. They were simply eating a snack as they walked along. It was not work, neither was it theft. Deuteronomy twenty three twenty five made provision for people who are hungry and to eat of a field that was not their own in order to satisfy their hunger. God, in giving his law, God taught his people to be generous and compassionate to the poor and the hungry. But the Pharisees saw that simple snack that the disciples took as a violation of the Sabbath laws, as breaking the fourth commandment. So they begin to grill Jesus with this question, why are your disciples breaking the law? Now, we, like I said, they were good at making laws and making these extra laws. And the Mishnah was something that was written actually after the time of Christ. But it was basically a written codification of oral traditions. So it's likely the things that you read in the Mishnah, which I think was about 150 years after the time of Christ, those were probably the things that were oral traditions with the Pharisees. And the Mishnah prohibited... It, it gave details to the law of God. Things like harvesting grain was prohibited. 
threshing grain was prohibited. It also forbid administering medical care except that which was necessary for preserving life. These were the types of laws that the Pharisees were teaching. But the problem was, is they began to equate their own laws with the law that God had given. And they, they put them on the same level. So perhaps a more honest way of asking this would have been for them to say, Jesus, why are disciples doing what we say is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answers them with Scripture and with another question, which is one of Jesus' favorite ways of answering his accusers. He says, he points them to an Old Testament passage, and it's one that we've heard preached just recently from this pulpit. And we read about how that he pointed them to the encounter that David had with the high priest when he was on the run from Saul. We read about it in 1 Samuel 21. And in that passage, David comes to the high priest and asks for bread for he and his men. They were hungry and needed, needed sustenance. The high priest gave them the bread of the presence, which was really reserved for the priests. Jesus seems to be pointing to David as God's anointed king, as being justified in doing the action in his time of need. And by aligning himself with David, he is, as one commentator has said, implying a covert claim to a personal authority at least as great as that as David. And then we know that later on, Jesus said that he is both David's son and David's Lord. So he is pointing to his kingly authority in his action, in all that he does. Now, if you've paid attention to this text, and if you recall from when Pastor Greco preached this, there is a difference in the name of this priest. Verse 26 tells about an event which occurred in the time of Abiathar, the high priest. Yet in 1 Samuel 21, it talks about David having a conversation with Ahimelech, the priest, about allowing him to have this bread of the presence in the house of God. Now, some would like to look at this text and say, now look, the Bible isn't true. They would point to this text as as proof that Scripture contradicts itself. But before we go down that road, we must realize that no doubt Abiathar was there at the time of this interchange between David and Ahimelech, because Abiathar was the son of Ahimelech and was the only survivor, remember, of Saul's wicked plot and, and that was carried out by Doeg to kill all these priests. And only Abiathar was survived. And he went on to become a prominent priest in his own right. This is simply saying that the event that Jesus is referring to happened in the period of time when Abiathar was the priest in Israel. And we... We just need to remember that we can't read the Bible with the same expectations as we would read a 21st century history book, because it's simply not that. Their understanding and their way of recording history was different than what we expect today. Enough on that. I want us to focus on the magnitude of Christ's claim here. To say that he was Lord of the Sabbath is not just a fancy title. This is the first time in Mark that Jesus refers to himself as being Lord over anything. To be Lord of something is to be the master. It implies authority and ownership. 
Remember, it was Yahweh that revealed himself on Mount Sinai and gave the law to his people. He appeared at Sinai in, in thunder and cloud and lightning and fire with all these, these fabulous, spectacular evidences of his presence. And that was in the people's mind. When they thought about God's law, they thought about Sinai. They thought about the greatness of Yahweh in giving the law to his people. The, the principle of Sabbath is something that we see all the way from creation. But it was at Sinai that God gave them the details of Sabbath observation. Because of these clear commands at Sinai, the Jewish people rightly and strictly guarded how the Sabbath was to be observed. The Sabbath was God's day, and any God-fearing Jew would observe it. And here comes Jesus, and he says that, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Whoa, wait a minute. That was, that was Yahweh that appeared at Sinai. And here is Jesus saying, I am Yahweh. I am God. I am Lord of the Sabbath. He equates himself. He says that he is God himself. And as he does this, he addresses the legalism of the hearts of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were good law keepers. In fact, they were so good that they, they must have loved law because they created more laws to obey and to make sure that other people obeyed. <clears throat> they were legalistic. We even used their name um, in a derogatory way to describe someone who is legalistic and self-righteous and a hypocrite. But what is legalism? If you look it up in a quick dictionary, I did an online dictionary, and it says the doctrine that salvation is gained through good works, legalism, or the judging of conduct in terms of adherence to precise laws. I think that's, that would probably fit most of our understandings, most of us, our understanding of legalism. But, but really, it's more than that. Legalism is really failing to trust God to be a good God, and to give us what we need. Legalism fails to trust that God gives us his law for our good. The legalist wearily assumes the cross of obedience, not out of a joyful trust in God as a good and gracious God, but out of mere duty to the task and to the law itself. And there's also typically a slight distrust of God along with that. The legalist treats God as one who gives his love conditionally based upon what we do. Sinclair Ferguson has, has pointed out so helpfully, and he says, legalism is a peculiar kind of submission to God's law, something that no longer feels the personal divine touch in the rule it submits to. He goes on to say, the essence of legalism is rooted not merely in our view of law as such, but in a distorted view of God as the giver of that law. God becomes a magnified policeman who gives his law only because he wants to deprive us and in particular to steal our joy. What is the root of our obedience? Is it out of mere duty to God is it out of fear of him? Is it out of a distrust for who he is and the purpose of his law? 
Contrast the actions and attitudes of the Pharisees in our text with the delighted words of David in the Psalms where he said, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. What a contrast that is from the Pharisees who obey strictly because they think that's how they gain approval. And David who says, I love your law. It is my delight. It is my meditation all the day. How do you treat the law of God? Is it your delight? Do we know it comes from a God who loves us and delights to give his people good things? Or are we like the Pharisees whose only satisfaction can come in rigid obedience to God's law and our own additions to it? As Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus addressed that legalism. The Pharisees said it was a sin to administer medical care of any kind that was not given for life-threatening cases. Jesus' approach to this man in chapter 3 was not about the details of the care given, but simply could he do this man good? Jesus healed this man to minister to him. And Christ defended his disciples in the first account, knowing that plucking a few heads of grain were not a violation, but simply a snack for them, something to sustain them on the way. As Lord of the Sabbath, he addressed the legalism, but he also affirmed the Sabbath. Christ was a lawkeeper himself. He loved God's law, and he kept it perfectly. He observed the Sabbath. We read about him worshiping in the synagogues throughout the gospel. Jesus didn't just tell us that he's Lord of the Sabbath, but he also helps us to understand the purpose of the Sabbath as well. I should note here that as I talk about the Sabbath, I think that, that probably most of us equate our Christian Sabbath on the first day of the week with the Sabbath of the Old Testament on the seventh day of the week. And that's right, and that's biblical. It was given under the Old Covenant um, on the seventh day, and it's transitioned now to the first day of the week. And this is based, of course, upon the fact that Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week. And just as God signified that his work of creation was complete as he rested on the seventh day, we recognize that the work of Christ is complete upon his resurrection on the first day of the week. So what is the purpose of the Sabbath? First of all, it's of course for God's glory. Everything is for God's glory. All of creation, he is glorified in all his work. He created the Sabbath, and he rested on the seventh day. Not because he was tired, not because he was worn out from creating the world, but to show that his work of creation was complete. And then he pointed to that example in giving the law. When he gave the fourth commandment, he said, look at creation. He said, in giving the fourth commandment, he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So he says, look at my example. I rested and you follow my example and rest one day a week. 
when he gave them manna in the wilderness, which interestingly was before chapter 20. The giving of the manna was in Exodus 16. He gave them command then not to gather on the Sabbath day, but to gather enough for two days on the day before the Sabbath. So this principle of six days and one day of rest, six days of work and one day of rest, was integral to creation and to God's most basic commands for his people. It was a holy, hallowed day because God has set it aside as such. And in it, we are to rest from our labors. And it's not just for God's glory. It's also for our good. Think about what Jesus had said. The Sabbath was made for man. It is for us. Shouldn't we consider the ways in which it is for our own good? Jesus taught in chapter 3, verse 4, that the Sabbath was for doing good. Jesus challenged the conventions of the Pharisees saying, should you do harm or good? Should you preserve life or kill on the Sabbath? Jesus sought to do good and he ministered to those that were in front of of him. It's good to do acts of mercy. It's good to do ministry on the Lord's day. I'm grateful for those that are out there, policemen and firemen and doctors and nurses that are giving care, protecting us, and doing the things that are necessary for our survival. Jesus healed on the Sabbath, and it wasn't a person that was going to die in the next 24 hours. He did it as an act of mercy for this man. But as usual, Jesus had multiple reasons that were accomplished, purposes that were accomplished in that healing. It was certainly for the man's benefit. It was... It was very public. He called this man forward. He made a display of it in a sense. And he he did it to show his power and authority and to challenge the legalism of the Pharisees. And then we see that Christ was grieved and angry at the hardness of heart of those that day. The Sabbath is for doing good. And finally this evening, the Sabbath is a delight. And this is... This is where I really wanted to land this sermon, because the Sabbath is a delight. I think one passage of Scripture that has been pivotal for my understanding of how to observe the Lord's Day is in Isaiah 58, 13, and 14. Here Isaiah is confronting the hypocrisy of God's people, and he is imploring them to take delight in obedience. He says, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The key comparison that Isaiah is making here is what way are you following? Are you seeking your own things? Or are you seeking ways to honor God? Are you delighting in Him? Especially on the day that He has given us for rest and for worship and for doing good. As believers, we are to delight in God. We're to do that every day of the week. But on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, the Christian Sabbath, we have an opportunity to do that in a special way. And we observe it by not doing our own things. 
The thing that is forbidden in this text is doing your own things on the Sabbath, seeking your own pleasure, doing your own business, seeking recreations which only fulfill your desire and take your mind from desiring God. The proper way to observe the Sabbath is by doing things that help us delight in God. So what many see as a negative thing, a prohibition, something which can, that we can't do on the Sunday, resting and worshiping on the Lord's Day, is actually a positive thing. We are to rest from our own works, words, and thoughts about our worldly employments and recreation, the Catechism says. says we get to rest from the things of this world, from doing our own things. We get to lay them aside and focus upon our Redeemer. What a blessing that is. So if the Sabbath is for our own good, I'm sure some of you tonight are probably questioning, so what can we do on the Lord's Day, and what should we not do? Well, I'm not going to give you that list. But I hopefully will give you some things to think about as you contemplate that. Certainly the things that we should do involve worship, rest, mercy, ministry. In summary, things that help us delight in God. What should we not do? We should not seek our own things, our own pursuits, our own pleasures. The day should look different. And we should look forward to it. It should delight us as we delight in God. We delight in Him through the means that He has provided, through the Word, sacraments, and prayer. Chad Van Dixorn, in his commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith, offers helpful counsel. He says that how the Sabbath is observed will vary between families and individuals, but what should characterize the day should be public and private worship, things of necessity, and acts of mercy. And I quote, The main point, he says, is that between worship, hospitality, and since it is the Sabbath, could we add fellowship and rest? Christians can easily devote their whole day to the Lord. The whole day can be devoted to God and could be a delight as we focus upon him. Thomas Watson, who's always eloquent, says, said this about the Lord's Day. When the falling dust of the world has clogged the wheels of our affections, that they can scarce move towards God, the Sabbath comes and oils the wheels of our affections, and they move swiftly on. Isn't that beautiful? God has appointed the Sabbath for this end. The heart which all the week was frozen on the Sabbath melts with the word. The Sabbath is a friend to religion. It files off the rust of our graces. It is a spiritual jubilee wherein the soul is set to converse with its maker. End of quote. The key to proper observance of the Lord's Day is not in answering the questions of what you can and cannot do, but rather in what do you delight? Do you want to grow in grace? What can you do towards that end, especially on the Lord's Day? Where is your mind on the Lord's Day? Is it on worshiping Him, or is it on the plans for next week? Are you delighting in the things of God? Are you rejoicing to be in His house and worshiping with His people? As I close, I just want to say I know that the pressures of life, kids, jobs, deadlines are great. And for many in this congregation... Monday comes very early, and it's very hard to keep the work week in its proper place. But may God give us grace to delight in Him who is Lord of the Sabbath every day of the week 
and especially on his day that he has given to man. Amen. Let us pray. Lord of the Sabbath, we praise you and thank you that you have given us this day in which we can delight in you. Certainly we are able to do that and we should do that every day. But especially on this Lord's Day, we delight in you and we thank you that you have given us this day. We thank you for your word and thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are Lord of the Sabbath. Help us to rest in you and to take this message throughout this week, we ask and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.